Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, this is Dr. Jim Doty, host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast. My guest today is Sensei Koshin Paley Ellison, Zen teacher, Jungian psychotherapist, author, most recently, of Untangled, Walking the Eightfold Path to Clarity, Courage, and Compassion. Koshin is also the co-founder of the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care. We're going to talk a bit about his path to becoming a Zen teacher. I hope you enjoy. Well, Koshin, it's great to see you now for our third time after having a few technical failures. Um, so uh, I think our internet is stable. Uh, we have a new computer, so I think we're uh, good to go here. If you recall, and I, I hate to um, sort of make you relive, uh, you know, topics that can be uncomfortable, but I think... Um, for a lot of people, um, they want to understand how you got to where you're at today. And um, for many of us, uh, that journey uh, has oftentimes been painful. And so if I recall correctly, you had started telling me a story about your teacher in the studio and it was at a martial arts studio if i recall correctly yes 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 yeah, so i grew up in a home of well-meaning people and and yet as many of us struggle with that there is a big difference between well-meaning and what we're actually doing and where people's values, my parents and different people's values and what they actually were doing were quite, in moments were an incredible chasm and in moments were together. And I think that creates a lot of confusion so that there was, you know, sexual abuse and physical abuse, and certainly verbal and emotional difficulties and so I was really in the state of really looking for refuge. And so I had, you know, one of the places of refuge was cinema, was movies. And when people used to go to movies and, <laughs> and the movie theater was an amazing place as a child. And so I used to bike down to the mall with my best friend Jason on our little banana seat bikes and uh, to, and we saw the first Star Wars movie. And I remember, wow, thinking you could actually have a teacher. And the idea of that, and I think the image of, that was the first Star Wars, Luke Skywalker was like living in, his parents weren't his parents, which is kind of how I felt. And he felt like he belonged somewhere else, which I also felt that, that I couldn't find, feel a sense of home and a sense of steadiness. And he met a teacher like out in the world, but not in school. And so I thought, wow, that's incredible. And I just also loved that how whiny he was. And he was always complaining because I felt that way too. And I think that's what makes him relatable as a character. Just like, ah, you know, he wants, he wants. And, uh, but yet I didn't know how to become a Jedi. I didn't know where Tatooine really was. And so I knew that I needed to find a teacher, but I didn't know how. And it was soon after that, that this other film came out, which called The Karate Kid. And there was also the same motif of a whiny kid complaining and finds a teacher, Mr. Miyagi, famously. And I realized like, ah, you could find one at a karate 
karate. <laughs> so I went to the local strip mall was really just a short walk from our house in the suburbs and beneath the the basement <laughs> beneath the basement of the drugstore phase drugs was this karate school that was like dank and pretty nasty and serious like people went there for mostly adults it was not one of those karate schools with like kids classes you know like, <laughs> and i was 11 years old and this teacher sensei white was his name and and this kind of makeshift wooden floor would have a sit in seiza where your knees are underneath yourself and it was so painful and but he would walk around us in such a steady grounded way and, and used to say over and over and over again you will never be free until you can be still with your pain and this continues to this very day to be a powerful teaching and as an 11 year old i felt like i was learning superhero business and it was also i didn't understand this as a child but i think it was really the beginning of compassion for me that i understood that the people in my house just didn't know how to be still with their pain they were just flailing and reacting and didn't know how to hold their pain. And so it was very super poignant and powerful, you know. And maybe even beautiful to learn how to be sweating with excruciating pain and also realizing there was something else that there was a taste of freedom. Yeah. In that process, though, and I, we've talked about this a little bit previously, but uh, you were struggling, though, with your own sexuality. And also, uh, I think the fact that you were being bullied. And how do you think that was this? You had your own pain. And was the suffering that uh, was caused by the practice in the karate studio, was that in some ways trying to substitute the pain you were having and deal with it? Uh, or uh, was it just um, actually in some ways being a... Uh, um, uh, a masochist and sort of saying, well, I'm suffering here. I'm going to suffer there. And life is suffering. And that's just the way it is. Hmm. I think that it was actually, you know, yeah, I was a young gay kid and, and actually really, and at my, at my bus stop for a school was the school bully. And it was like, you know, a gauntlet of, you know, going from, a house where I didn't feel safe to the bus stop where I didn't feel safe to school where I didn't feel safe. There were not a lot of places of refuge. And the karate school studio felt like a refuge. It felt like a training. It didn't feel like a home, but it felt like a place where I was actually learning what I needed. And the kind of heartbreaking part of that whole thing was that at a certain point, you know, the school bully just kept pushing me down one day. This is after years. And one of Sensei White's teachings was like, you must never use this to fight. And one day after being called a fag so many times and being like, literally my face being ground into the gravel. I just said, enough. And I just stood up and I felt powerful. And he's like, oh, yeah, what are you going to do about it, fag? And we were, and I just remember thinking, just leave me alone. And at that time, I was actually quite skilled 
at martial arts. And, but I was like, just leave me alone. He's like, what are you going to do, fag? And he started pushing me and pushing me. And I just said, I'm not going to let you do this anymore. And I really, just something inside of me snapped. And I, I defended myself and stopped him. And his mother, I remember yelling out the window over the second floor of their house were right there. And she was like, what are you doing to my son? I was like, you should take care of your son because your son is an asshole. You know, and the next day, and I was so embarrassed actually, because I knew for some reason, I felt like I couldn't tell Sensei White that I had done this. So I never went back to the karate school ever again. And because I felt like I betrayed a fundamental creed in a way. And, and at the same time, suddenly when I was like the least, felt like the least popular kid in the school, the next day I was a hero walking down those hallways. Everyone was giving me high fives somehow like people had known what I had done. And suddenly I was cool for being violent, for kind of standing up to the, to the school bully. And it just made me so feel sick actually. And yet I also felt like it was a protection. So, cause he never bothered me ever again. Well, you know, the, I think one of the challenges or, or realities of bullies is, you know, they have their own degree of suffering. And, you know, uh, unless pain is dealt with, it creates pain. And, um, you know, it's in some ways it's, it's just horrible to see them because their actions are uh, manifestations of their own uh, pain. And uh, it is hard to deal in those situations because I, I'm not sure if you read my book, but there was a part in it where I was being bullied and yes, uh, finally stood up. And it was painful. I know. It's awful. It's really awful. Um, but that being be said, <laughs> ultimately, it's better than having your face repeatedly shoved into the gravel at some point. <laughs> But, you know, the sad part about it is, of course, how opinion can immediately change, right? Uh, And and that's another sad statement. Instead of looking at you for who you are deep inside yourself, you have had these uh, arbitrary judgments about you. And then they, in a microsecond, they change. And, And in some ways, that's just as sad as the bully's suffering. Totally. totally. It's like, what happened to this kid? You know, I think about him still, you know, and like, who was he and what was going on inside of his house that he would have to go out and have to bully someone else? But also, you know, for the other students who, you know, immediately changed their opinion, but you haven't changed. Right. And, uh, and in that in and of itself is in some ways disturbing, but I think it also does something interesting too, because um, you, you have to love yourself and not expect um, the love of everyone around you. And because when that happens, of course, uh, you're always changing yourself to get the accolade, uh, but you're with a very mercurial audience. And I think unless you love yourself and are comfortable with yourself and okay with every part of you that you don't like about yourself, then you're going to have these challenges, I think. Definitely, definitely. You know, it's just... You know, that's why I think that really, how do we find 
practice that actually supports us in a regular way to come back to so that kind of we're atoning being at one with our values and being responsible and loving and caring and heartbroken all at the same time. Yeah. No, I, I think that is the challenge. And, you know, people talk, and uh, as a Jungian psychotherapist, of course, and I, I think I may have mentioned to you, you know, I went through uh, five years of Freudian analysis and four years of Jungian analysis, multiple years of just analysis. And um, somebody said to me, wow, that's a lot of therapy. What'd you get out of it? And I said, well, I realized who I was and I decided not to change. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, this idea of your shadow self and how to integrate that, um, into who you are. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we, to me, it's just the ongoing, (laughs) ongoing curiosity and openness. And I found, you know, these days I feel like, you know, I've done lots of hard work to really in particular, not feel so defended all the time. Because, you know, I was carrying around this identity for so long for, well, I don't know, a good 10, 20 years where I was just really defended, where I didn't even appear to be defended. I felt like happy-go-lucky and very confident. And yet I wouldn't let people get close because I felt that people were dangerous. And I was still with running with that narrative. And I realized at a certain point that maybe part of the medicine is no narrative as medicine. <laughs> I realized that like to really reflect on, wow, like maybe the narrative actually is, is poisoning me, which it was. Well, in some ways, this is uh, an ineffective way of dealing with your shadow, right? Because you've created a narrative that isn't authentic. It's a method of you, I think, surviving with your anxieties and fears while not letting everyone know you have these anxiety and fears. Totally. And it was really actually a, a very dear friend my friend Liz in college who I think I was 18 or 19 and we were walking down some street and she just turned to me and said, you know, you appear so happy, but you are so sad inside and who gets to know you? And I remember thinking, holy shit, you know, she sees me. I actually suddenly felt visible and so surprised and she said you need therapy you know like you need to work on that so that you can actually feel known and it was one of the most generous loving things i think anyone had done for me up until that point like it was like she cared enough to say maybe what many of us feel about someone or someone we love, but to just say it. And she said it in such a kind of just loving, kind of neutral way. Just like, I see, like, I just see your face and I see that chair and I see, you know, how are you doing? You know, I I think that sometimes we don't appreciate that even with all the masks that we try to cover ourselves with, that there's a subset yeah. of people who, for whatever reason, see right through them. And, yeah. uh, um, and in fact, I, I think that's an incredible gift uh, because, uh, you know, so many of us with our pain, we still really want to be known and, and everything and, and still be acknowledged, accepted and not have judgment, just unconditional love. But I think that's one of the, uh, 
biggest challenges. Yeah, and I think that, you know, reminds me of my friend Diane Meyer when she, one of her the things that she likes to ask her people is, you know, how are you feeling inside of yourself and how can we tend to that together? I mean, it's so generous, right? You know, I think you know Diane too. Sure. It's just like, it just, she's, it's such a wonderful question. And it's like that we're, I think we forget that to ask courageous questions is so generous and healing. And we just have to get over ourselves. And to do that is a true act of generosity. And I think actually what the paramitas and Buddhism are about, I think that that's what compassion is about. I think that is what generosity is about. That is what, you know, vigor is about is how do we be vigorous with our friendships and how do we get vigorous with our, uh, our loving action? Well, uh, that path can be a long, tortuous one. But if you stay on the path, of course, that uh, ultimately uh, liberates you. Yes, yes. Uh, well, I, I think dealing uh, with your bully, although on some level it caused you a lot of pain because of your perception that you let Mr. White down, but it also liberated you in some ways to see what power actually you had within you. But I think also oftentimes when we give our agency away by letting other people's judgments define who we are, it's not so much that you're having to bully people anymore. It's having people see the power within you and mm -hmm. not being afraid of that power, but mm -hmm. also letting people see that it's there. And that actually, I think, changes a, a lot of your interaction with people. Wow. It's such a big deal. You know, it's, and I think to me, it's also has been not pretending that we're just one thing. Like I'm not just a victim. Like for a long time, I was really interested in, maintaining that I was a victim of all of these things. I was a victim of abuse and that people were dangerous. Therefore, people were dangerous. I, you know, had this identity as a gay person and that it was dangerous to be gay. That it was, you know, all of these different things. So I had created these walls and barriers and cages for myself. And what I think it's so important at a certain point is to actually turn the jewel a bit and learn how to see, oh, you know, yes, those things happen and they were awful. You know, they're just objectively awful. And, and that's not what's happening right now. And I was in many ways dragging around for the time that I needed to drag her around that I was like reenacting it all the time. And I think the beauty of a steady practice and community is that we can actually do something new and actually experience ourselves new. Like, oh, wait, that's not actually happening right now. No, there you are, Jim. Like, it's like, oh, it's like, <laughs> and you're not that guy and you're not my father. You're not my, you know, stepmother or whatever that is, you know, it's like that we're just here. And, you know, it's almost like that kind of like taking the scales off our eyes, you know, which I think is such a beautiful part of practice, a life of practicing of curiosity and love is just like, oh my goodness, you know, like, and why fairy tales are so great because they're just so true. You know, that we turn things into weird dreams and we live as if we're in a dream, a recurring dream or a recurring nightmare. Well, I think, uh, unfortunately, uh, many children 
who've been traumatized carry the baggage of that trauma with them, and many actually until their deaths. Uh, uh, yes. And so often they don't appreciate how that trauma impacts every interaction, every decision, every relationship. And, uh, uh, and I think that's why it's important to really have the self-examination. And, and I think it's hard unless you have somebody helping you. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 because it's so easy, you know, you're talking about community and, and habits. What I've experienced, you know, as a physician, oftentimes, and I think this is analogous, a patient will come to the emergency room who English is not their first language. When they're in pain and suffering, they always revert back to their primary language. And for a lot of children who've grown up in these situations, when things get stressful, uh, they often revert back to the behaviors that are not helpful but uh, it's what has what is comfortable and familiar versus the unknown. And that, I think, is another uh, sad reality oftentimes for so many of us. Yes, yes. So much. So, you know, I think that it's almost like that that's where we keep replaying, like as if as if that's still happening. And I think that I remember this. <laughs> experience I had with my father where we were walking on this beach and in Cape Cod where we spent many, many summers in Truro and, you know, and he was talking about, and we were, my dad and I were very close and he was talking about this person who has been super difficult for me as a perpetrator and, you know, talking about basically their good parts and their, and, and, I, and defending actually. And I remember myself flying into like feeling this rage, like coming up because I felt once again, unprotected. Like I wanted to like gouge him, you know, like my father, like I just felt this incredible, like killing rage come up. And and I just said, can we just stop for a second? (laughs) And we were like, I said, I just need a little pause here and look out at the beautiful, and there we were in Cape Cod, which is like this beautiful place in the world, ocean, sky. And I just looked at him and like, you know, I know you have those feelings about that person. You're entitled to have those feelings. What I realized though, in that moment was just like, I realized that my, He might not change. I can change. I love my father. Love him. And I don't need to react in the same way. Like, I can feel the pain of it. Look out at the sea and be like, my goodness, that's so painful. And learning how to be still with it, actually. And just be like, you know what? That's your stuff. I'm good as long as like, let's not, let's agree to disagree here, you know? Well, you know, I think one of the greatest lessons is um, understanding so often that there are different perspectives. Uh, And of course, we're always tied to our perspective. And don't get me wrong, I'm not in any way justifying uh, the perpetrator's actions or your father not necessarily being uh, sympathetic or understanding how much pain that caused you. Right. But what I am saying is that objectively, an event is an event. It only has power if you let it have power. Right. And I think that's what you're talking about here. Exactly. Uh, one is... Um, you know, it's it's like forgiveness. Until you're able to forgive, you have an attachment to an event that causes you suffering, which has nothing to do with the perpetrator. Exactly. Yeah, it's just like that. I was reliving, you know, I was reacting in the same way 
again and again and again. I mean, the, the Buddha was, you know, rather clever. You know, the wheel of suffering is a real thing. And it comes, you know, to me, one of the names of it is rumination. Like anything that I'm like, yeah, yeah. Like we keep going back to that same narrative and it's like a closed loop. And I know it so well and it really sucks, you know, and it's so painful and it feels terrible. And yet we often are feeding it so that we're just like, we still keep it going even though it feels so terrible. And to me, the beauty is, you know, that this is one of the reasons why I wanted to try and really dive into the Four Noble Truths, which is what Untangled's about, which is like to really look at, wow, what are the causes of suffering? How do we get tangled up in our own crap and really see what the Buddha saw, which was that, my goodness, I am the causing my own suffering, not pain, but I'm causing the suffering, which is that comes from that looping of our over attachment to in the clinging on to the story to the feeling to my opinion about it like all of it just like oh it's so heavy-handed and i know it so well and it feels it is like recreating a nightmare and as you were saying, like I, yeah, I've known many people who have lived out there till the end of their days, staying in that suffering, staying all tangled up and knotted up. And it's just, hmm. and what's so amazing is that if we can really reckon with that, you know, it's, I think that to me, it's like also what your book is about is that we can actually do something new that if we can actually turn the light to where it isn't and we can actually then realize oh yeah it's like i'm i'm holding too tight or i'm just i'm full of rage about whatever or whatever that is or i'm really inhabiting that fundamental delusion of that i'm alone and not connected to the world which all of those things I know so deeply and so painfully. But once we can realize that and be embarrassed and just be like, oh, yes, 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 I do that. Then we can change. Then we can actually pivot. But we have to, you know, as my teacher, Kojima Roshi says, you know, like that we have to suffer. We have to suffer our suffering. And just to be like, oh, 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 so that we can actually walk the path. Because many of us want to just bypass the whole situation and go to the spiritual path and feel good. <laughs> well, you know, it's it, it's really interesting you bring that up because mm. I think a fundamental part of us is we want to avoid pain, right? <laughs> but I think two things happen. One is if your life is spent avoiding pain or at least trying to live in that space where you receive accolades, externally people tell you how great you are, uh, you can get lost in that. And then uh, the problem, of course, with that is uh, your ego uh, expands and you don't want to leave that place. And I think you also feel that you should be in that place. Uh, but I have to say from my own experience, and I'd, I'd love to hear your comment, you know, in those times where I've been in pain or suffered, those are the times when I have learned about myself, uh, my resilience, mm -hmm. my strength. Uh, insights into my drivers. And uh, and the other reality is the transitory nature of many of the things that we, in our minds, we tell ourselves, oh my God, I can't handle this. This is going to last forever. When in fact, uh, typically, uh, they don't. 
and uh, over time, uh, you get insights. I don't know if I told you this story. Um, it, at my house, at the end of my pool, I have a headless Buddha, and it's a modern art sculpture. And the Buddha is holding a persimmon. Uh, mm-hmm. And I don't know if you eat persimmons, but, uh, yeah. uh, and in fact, I planted a persimmon tree uh, to the left of that statue. But, mm-hmm. you know, for me, what it does symbolize is that, one, uh, not to get lost in my head, which so many of us do, but the other is that, as you know, a persimmon starts out hard and bitter. And if you have patience, it becomes soft and sweet. And I think so many of these negative experiences, when we reflect on them from a distance, we realize, in fact, that fruit ultimately became uh, soft and sweet. Mm -hmm. And I think it also emphasizes this concept of equanimity or this evenness of temperament. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a big deal. You know, it's, it's so interesting. You talk about persimmon because <laughs> we're just, as a sangha, as our community here at the Zen Center, we're studying Kosho Uchiyama's opening land of thought, where he, in the beginning of the book, he talks about the persimmon tree. <laughs> and you <we're>, see? <laughs> and we're literally just reading that section this weekend. And uh, so I'm, oh, it's so great. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And it's really, as one of our students here at the Zen Center says, you know, this is a, just a life practice. This is the marathon. This is not a sprint and like learning how to just slowly, slowly make our way like the persimmon, you know, like it's some, you know, in Japan, they often say that it takes a hundred years for the tree to truly mature so that, that the true sweetness comes. And what I love about that is it often is beyond our lifetime. And can we cultivate the kind of patience and love and steadiness that will be for people beyond us. It's such a beautiful, beautiful image for me. No, I, 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 I think that's right. And I, I think one of um, the things that I think about is this concept of wabi-sabi, of course. Mm-hmm and this idea of impermanence and incompleteness. And uh, what's the third one? I will get this. Imperfect. <laughs> See, I'm not, a, I, I'm not a Buddhist uh, or Zen scholar like you. I'm just a country neurosurgeon. <laughs> you know, it's a, you know, it's just talking with one of our fellows who were, you know, so in our contemplative medicine fellowship, and she was talking about how she used to see like her challenges at home so different from her challenges at work and so different from her challenges in her relationships. And we tend to like put everything in these like weird boxes but if we go back to the persimmon tree like the persimmon tree is just one thing and that is the same i would say with us like we're just one thing we're this one life that is not even ours you know and but i think that it's just it's also an arc of our own healing where we when we're so hurt everything feels like it's about us I know that so well. And yet the possibility is to grow and mature like the persimmon tree and realize ah, I can grow and actually be rather astringent and kind of disgusting for a while, like a young persimmon tree is, and then eventually get sweeter and sweeter as I practice learning how to be loving and compassionate in every direction. You know, know, it's interesting because um, 
you were talking about this issue. On the one hand, the nature of our suffering causes us to look inward, which exacerbates our suffering. And the cure, if you will, is actually to go outward and be of service. But the paradox is that when you go outward and you're looking for affirmation, then actually that is ultimately not to your benefit because the reality is you have to accept yourself and it is you who decides uh, your happiness. So it's this weird in and out type of uh, uh, situation, I think. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a big deal. Right? It's such a big deal. And how do we, you know, think about, you know, one of the founders of our lineage in the Soto Zen tradition, Kazan, you know, talked about his grand, Dharma grandfather, Dogen. And he said, you know, the three qualities that he embodied were, you know, sloughing off, like learning how to slough off our stuff. And he was composed and thunderous. I just feel like it's such a wonderful trio of things, like learning how to let things move and not be over-identified with, which is a practice moment by moment, and learning how to have composure and that steadiness so that we can be still with our pain and thunderous, alive and wild. You know, it's, it's such a wonderful possibility for our lives. No, I think that's exactly right. And I think uh, an amazing part of those types of teachings is you look at somebody like the Dalai Lama, of course, who's had immense suffering, yet he remains joyous and filled uh, in many ways with immense uh, power. And I think um, that's what we have to strive for. Um, One of the things, though, I think is our attachment to um, a goal or an outcome that we feel is very important, yet the very nature of that attachment causes suffering. I always feel like the most wonderful goal is to settle our heart and mind onto the ground of the Dharma so that we can actually be of service and be of help. Well, in some ways, though, I I think what that emphasizes, though, is while it's wonderful to have a goal, the fruit or the nourishment is in the path. Oh, And I think that's what, uh, unfortunately, uh, so many people forget. And the problem is when you're always looking at the goal, it's impossible to be present uh, and enjoy what is happening on the path, I think. Right, because we want what we want when we want it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, we were talking about, you mentioned your book a few times, and, and, uh, you know, it's a wonderful book. Maybe, and just to comment on this idea of untangled, uh, because in some ways the nature of being tangled is um, there's no clear way to untangle because it's just a mess of, let's say, string that's all intertwined and you can't see how it's even gotten tangled. Uh, and the challenge then for all of us is how do we untangle ourselves from that? So maybe you can just comment on the book itself and what your goals were in writing the book and what are some of the core messages. And I know we've talked about a bit of them, uh, but, uh, um, maybe you can tell us about that. Yeah. So it reminds me of one of my students, you know, she knew what I was writing about and she had this big tangled yarn and she decided to take it on as a practice. 
to, that it is workable, but it just requires deep patience and steadfastness, humility. And for me, that's what the book is about, that it's workable and we could companion each other on this path and that we can't do it alone. And we need to have a sense of belonging that is challenging and that also discipline is a road to freedom. I I would just comment, at least from my own experience, on some level, I had always longed uh, for that person, sort of a a father image who would guide me and or that person who was there. And, uh, you know, I created a narrative ultimately because, unfortunately, frequently there was no one there and it made it very challenging uh, I think, to allow people to help you. Yeah. Uh, and I think uh, the greatest gift we can give ourselves is to um, accept our vulnerability and our need for these things. Uh, but I think a lot of traumatized people, either they don't feel they're worthy of that or that they're so far gone that it's not going to help. Yeah, and I think it's really learning how to welcome discomfort and awkwardness and really learning how to have the courage, meeting our discomfort, our awkwardness, and our pain with courage and compassion. Because it's not enough to be clear. It's not enough to know your story. What we need to do is actually have courage and compassion to meet it because it doesn't matter what we say. It matters what we do. So, and as the great Toni Morrison says, you know, why is too difficult? How is the place of refuge? So like how we live our life is everything. And it's amazing what we have as a possibility of a life. Um. On that note, speaking of a life, uh, what, um, you know, the challenge for many people, and I think for myself, was to let individuals see my own brokenness because by doing so and by being that vulnerable, you're afraid that somebody's going to take advantage of you. And I think this relates to Wabi Sabi. And uh, maybe you can comment on that. Uh. How we're broken is beautiful. You know, how we're, you know, as the great Sufi mystic Rumi talked about that, the cracks are where the light comes in. And that's where, you know, Leonard Cohen took that also and i think that it's just it's just true like when we see people who are real and they're funky and they're deeply imperfect because they're human you know that's relatable and i think that we don't really relate to porcelain statues we relate to warmth and it's, I always think about those wire monkeys. I forget the researcher who did that, but you know, like the wire monkey mommy, like not so great. You know, like the perfect idealized mommy, like the food is there, but it's, there's no warmth. And I feel like that our imperfections and our challenges are actually the gifts and are what makes us trust people. You trust people who are not so sealed up. You trust people because they fall down. You trust people because they fall down and then you watch how they get up and meet you again. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I uh, obviously, like you, give a lot of talks and usually I end up telling some poignant stories 
uh, story, which results in my voice cracking or uh, a tear. And I was giving one of these talks, and afterwards a woman comes up to me. She says, you know, I felt so sorry for you up there. You must have been so embarrassed. Everyone was looking at you and thinking about how weak you were. And I'm sure you just were shamed by that. And she said, and here's the key part. She says, you know, I'm a psychiatrist and a hypnotist. And in three sessions, I can get rid of that for you. (laughs) And I looked at her, I said, that frankly is the superpower that I have because I'm okay with that. And the thing is, when you show your vulnerability, it allows other people to show theirs. And I can remember a talk I gave to about 250 people. And again, you know, I told some very uh, challenging stories for me that brought forth tears. And a woman comes up to me and she says, can I hug you? I said, of course. So I hugged her. And then all 250 people (laughs) lined up uh, to get hugged. And uh, that is the power, I think, of being vulnerable and uh, showing who you are. It's everything. Well, my friend, it is always a joy to see you. And thank you for spending... uh, this time. And uh, there was only one mild interruption. So that's better than the 50 we had uh, before. (laughs) I feel a lot of love for you, Jim. Yeah. And I the same. And I look forward to uh, uh, being uh, whatever it is that I do for you, for your your fellowship. (laughs) You're on the faculty. Oh, oh, I knew there was something in there. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com. Mm-hmm.